Welcome back to GLF Live, the official podcast of the Global Landscapes Forum. In today's episode, we're going to talk about the half of the world's population that is bearing the brunt of climate change more than the other. That's right, we're here to talk about women. According to the UN, women make up the majority of the world's poor and are more economically dependent on natural resources compared to men. They also face social, economic, and political barriers that make it harder for them to adapt to a world increasingly threatened by climate change. The irony, of course, is that a more gender-equitable world would also be a more climate-resilient one. There's a huge and growing set of literature on the critical value of women's unique knowledge, expertise, and skill sets, and the opportunities for change that we're missing by excluding them from leadership positions, decisions, and solutions. So today, we're here to raise up three remarkable women who are leading the fight against the climate crisis and doing what they can to bring more fellow females onto the stage. Over to our host, Gabrielle Lipton. Thank you to these three women that we have here. We're so honored to have you as part of our 16 Women Restoring the Earth list this year, and also for having you join this conversation today. So first we have Catherine Hayhoe, a prolific atmospheric scientist, author, and climate change communicator. She currently serves as chief scientist at the Nature Conservancy, and she has a focus on advocacy and adaptation. We next have Musanda Mumba, who's been involved with the GLF for many years, and she now directs the Rome Center for Sustainable Development under the United Nations Development Program, UNDP, and she is a true forest lover. She's the former chair of the Global Partnership on Forest and Landscape Restoration and the former vice chair of the Collaborative Partnership on Forests, and she comes from a long track record at the UN. So welcome, Musanda. Welcome, Catherine. And lastly, we have Anali Bustos, who's joining us from Argentina today. She's a young biologist and coordinator of the Monte Alegre Natural Reserve Restoration Project, which is a forest restoration project in Argentina. And it was her work for this that made her a GLF restoration steward last year, receiving a bunch of mentorship and funding for her work. And she's also a current, current PhD student at the University of Buenos Aires, working on habitat restoration for pollinators in agricultural environments. So we have a really incredible, uh, diverse array of women here with us. And we're just so excited to celebrate you and honor you and all the incredible work that you're doing for our planet. So first of all, thank you. And um, we'll just get going. So I want to pose the same question to each of you uh, to start off with, just to kick us off, which is a basic question. Uh, when and why did you decide to work in climate change in the environment? Was there a specific moment or experience that drove you toward what you're doing now? So um, perhaps Musanda, let's go ahead and start with you. Well, thank you so much. I'm just super honored to be part of this GLF Live and to just be in the presence of greatness. I mean, Catherine and Annalie, just an honor. You know what? Um, when I was a child and I was a teenager, we used to visit this national park uh, called Lokilba National Park in southern Zambia. And my father used to take us there and we loved it. And there was this massive baobab tree. And, you know, my twin sister and I and my siblings would take pictures there and and I, and I sort of revisited those pictures much, much later when I was in the middle of doing my PhD in 2001, 2002, whilst at University College London, because I went back to this location, this floodplain uh, landscape, um, excuse me, um, which is beautiful and it's stunning. 
And when I looked at the model, I was doing a whole mathematical model about the flooding dynamics of this, of this region. I just suddenly realized, oh my goodness, so much has changed. But my memory, my childhood memory was this landscape, which was just amazing. And, you know, it would flood and there were all these antelopes. And then I realized there were all these invasive species that were growing. Uh, it's an invasive called Mimosa pigra. And suddenly realizing from my data that, oh my goodness, the temperatures were much higher. And also the fluctuations with the river were varied. And suddenly you realize in your adult life that, you know, what you saw and the memory you had from your childhood is a time period and a time span of change that you were not quite aware of, but it was happening. And then you come to the realization just through a mathematical model that, oh my goodness, something is happening to the planet, but it's manifesting in this ecosystem that I'm working on. And then just listening to people and, you know, speaking to pastoralists, to fishermen, and I realized, oh my goodness, I need to be a part of this, to find a solution, to do something. And it was such an awakening, and it was such an awakening for me, and it was such a realization that I needed to start doing something. And then this actually hoisted me to a whole different level, to a whole different sort of spectrum of work that I've now been involved in for several years. And, and it's it's been so humbling, but at the same time, so fulfilling, actually, that just I'm a part of this to try and resolve, but also inspire people to be a part of this movement as well. Mm -hmm. That's a beautiful story. And you've certainly inspired so many people with your presence and your work. Um, Anali, what was the moment that drove you to be doing what you're doing now? Well, first of all, thank you very much for inviting me. It's truly an honor to talk to you. And in my case, I have worked on conservation and ecological restoration since my undergraduate degree. So I would say that initially it was a bit a little bit casual how I got into ecology and working with forests. I it just seemed like an exciting topic for me. And then and as my career progressed, I witnessed the fast and violent changes in natural systems. So I confirmed that I will continue to work in this fascinating topic in, in, in a necessary area as a restoration and ecology, and just to, to help to, to increase the, the knowledge, the receiving. Uh, Anneli, I think your sound is breaking up just a little bit. Okay, um, well, it, I, I, I will do an, a resume. It, it was like an, Casual, how I got into ecology at the first time, it seemed like an exciting topic for me. And then I, I started. Uh, seems the audio is still a bit choppy. Um, perhaps let's go on to Catherine and Anali, if you want to switch your internet, um, this might be a good time to do so. And Catherine, let's go to you. What was the experience or the moment that drove you into the work you're doing now? Well, in common with what we've already heard, it was when I connected my head to my heart. And for me, that happened in a class that I took as an undergraduate student. So I had grown up um, in Canada and in Colombia, and I grew up recognizing that the sky was blue, the grass was green, and climate was changing due to human activities. But I had never connected that to what I was seeing. And, you know, while living in South America, I, I, I lived through um, 
earthquakes and landslides and floods and droughts and heat waves that affect people much more strongly in places where everybody doesn't have air conditioning. There's no insurance program to help people out. Many people live below the poverty line. But I had never connected the dots between that, those impacts and that suffering and climate change until I returned to Canada and I was planning to become an astrophysicist. And I was almost finished my undergraduate degree and I was already doing research, working on the telescope, studying variable stars and galaxy clusters when I needed an extra class to finish my degree. And there was a brand new class on climate change, which is the importance of education. And I thought, well, why not take it? It looks interesting. But I had always thought of climate change as something that environmentalists care about and environmentalists work on and the rest of us wish them well, donate to their cause, watch their documentaries. That's what I thought. And then I took this class and I realized that climate change is not only an environmental issue, because of course it is, but climate change is also an issue of hunger. It's an issue of poverty. It's an issue of lack of access to clean water and basic resources. Climate change is a threat multiplier that takes every issue we're coping with today and every single sustainable development goal and makes it worse. Climate change is a human issue. And when I realized that, I thought, and when I realized how profoundly unfair it is, how climate change impacts all of us, but it impacts those who have done the least to cause the problem the most, I thought, how can I not do everything I can to help solve this urgent global issue? And I thought to myself back then, it's so urgent and it's so important, surely we'll fix it soon. And I can go back to studying galaxies. But that was a little bit too long ago. <laughs> well, maybe the galaxy studying will come in your next lifetime, but I'm really glad that the stars had it to lead you to that one class because the work that it's led you to do for our planet now has been so important. Um, so I guess that's what you've been meant to be doing. Anneli, it's nice to have you back. We, you broke up a little bit at the end of what you were saying, but I think we heard you quite well. And um, I'll be posing many questions your way to give you so many more opportunities to talk about your incredible work. Um, <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> at this moment, I kind of wanted to piggyback off something Catherine was just saying about the the threat multipliers and the inequalities that are brought out uh, by climate change. So Musanda, I'd like to go back to you with the next question, which is in light of International Women's Day as well, one of the threat multipliers is um, uh, gender discrepancies that already exist exacerbated by climate change. There are estimates that 80% uh, of people displaced by climate change are women. And these women are often the primary caregivers in their households. Um, they're often the farmers preparing the food, et cetera. So in the context of local communities that are experiencing climate change, what do you believe that more gender equality can look like? Is it equalizing experiences across the genders or is it giving women more forms of support and opportunities? Or what does this form of equality look like for you? Okay. No, thank you so much. And I just wanna pick up on what Catherine says. Thank you so much for really highlighting the human side of, of climate change and why climate change is uh, you know, a, 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 a multiplier, a threat multiplier, but also a justice issue um, and connected to you know, issues related to migration. I'm gonna give a couple of examples. I mean, let's look just what happened more recently in Madagascar, a country where we've seen you know, a country go from, you know, it's, it's an island state, a fairly large island state, country go from drought 
two, three cyclones go boom, 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 right? Um, and then all of a sudden, you know, I saw a picture, and I think it was a Reuters picture on Twitter, where a woman was standing on top of her roof, and she's cutting this tree. And, and I was kind of like, you know, looking at that picture and thinking, well, okay, she's cutting the tree. I haven't seen a man on top of the roof. Um, we've seen this in Mozambique. We've seen this in the Sahel, where the manifestation of these problems are mostly feminine. You know, you see the women dashing with the child on the back, et cetera. And in many places, particularly like the Sahel, the men have migrated. So you have more villages and communities with female-headed households, taking care of the children, dealing with the land, et cetera, and all of that, and then a drought comes. Um, now, we need to pair this to issues related to policy at the country level. So when governments are now discussing issues of recovery, are discussing issues of resilience, issues of um, or the humanitarian help and the aid that's needed, they also need to revisit the actual policies and see how these policies in, in, in one way or another can be gender problematic because they're not looking at the lens through which um, you know, the problem needs to be resolved. For instance, um, in some places they'll say, well, where's your husband? Your husband should come and sign off on this except there is no husband. The husband has migrated and has left, maybe, you know, tried his best off to Europe or something like that. So how do we even be, begin to think about the gender responsive policies to resolve an issue that is so complex by climate change? So in many ways we see, and we've seen for years, the implications on women, the implications on children, and now we're seeing it on youth uh, in terms of, you know, climate anxiety and all of that. So we need to take into account these dynamics and, and, and have a gender lens through which uh, we see and view the complexity of this problem and as such also think about the solutions through the very lens of how the recovery would happen and the support mechanisms that do not in any way undermine women, children, youth, because a lot of laws are very problematic. And they need to be revisited because this problem is not going away. It's here to stay. Yeah, thank you for going ahead and bringing up the policy aspect of all of this and the lens that we need that, <clears throat> excuse me, just needs to have so many different facets because it is so complex and there's so many areas to consider under this one umbrella. Uh, so thank you for giving some very visual examples also um, bringing that to this conversation. Uh, Catherine, I'd like to go back to you and discuss your work a bit. You uh, have worked in academia for a long time as well. And in this field, only 13% of earth sciences professors are women. And globally, less than 30% of all researchers are women. So when it comes to the sciences, we do see a gender gap, uh, which means there's a substantial lack of women perspectives in academia and research as well. As a very prominent woman in this field, what messages and perspectives do you take efforts to voice on behalf of other women? That's a great question. So just as women and children are disproportionately impacted by climate change, so too solutions can disproportionately benefit uh, many women and many children. But in order to have those solutions, we need women's voices at the table. Social science has showed that in order to develop the most robust solutions with the most co-benefits, so to speak, where you have win, 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 and win solutions, you need a diversity of voices, a diversity of experiences, a diversity of perspectives. 
And when we look at the science that's published, that science is predominantly published by researchers in the global north, as opposed to the global south. And the vast majority of it is still published more by men than women. Even the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, which has been working very hard on increasing the gender parity in this latest report, it was the highest they've had it so far, but it's still nowhere near 50-50. And why is that so important? It's because again, we are confronting the greatest challenge that has ever faced our civilization as we know it. It's not about saving the planet. The planet will be orbiting the sun long after we're gone is about us humans and many of the living things that share this planet with us, we're fighting for all of our survival together. And that means we need all of our perspectives at the table. So in recent years, I've been very fortunate to receive um, invitations to many places to contribute, to speak, to participate, to comment on many different actions and activities and uh, solutions that are being implemented. And whenever I am not available, I always try to recommend a unique voice that I feel like is not being sufficiently heard so that that voice can be at the table, sharing, speaking, writing, advising, commenting, because we need as many people as possible contributing to these solutions. Yeah, that's incredible. And thank you for making space at the table for more women's voices. I think that's something that all women in this space need to be conscious of is what we can do to help increase this diversity ourselves. Um, Annalie, I'd like to go back to you now. Uh, as I mentioned before in your brief introduction, you serve as a coordinator for a project restoring the forests of a reserve in Argentina, your home country. How have you as a young conservationist incorporated gender into the scope of this project? Well, the gender perspective appeared almost naturally in Montelegre since the first people who started the project were women. Um, today, uh, the team is mixed, but I always think it is essential to add more women to the restoration work. And, and for me, one way to do it is to share the, our work to sh and show our work. I think that that way other girls and women and little girls will know that they can do it too. And that's very important to have e examples, uh, another, to see other women working uh, into, into the climate actions or restoration. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. It's nice to hear that it was there from the start. Uh, that's a really nice precedent for bringing more people into that activity. Um, Musanda, back to you. And as you mentioned before a bit about policymaking, uh, maybe we can dig into that a bit more now. You've had a long career at the UN and have witnessed its negotiation processes for years. Could you give us some insight into the incorporation of women's voices in international decision-making pro processes and if and how this is changing? Sure, um, I, wa I want to say actually that this incorporation of, of women's and, and girls' voices really starts from the community and from the home. I was very fortunate enough to have a father who applauded me and my twin sister and just, you know, we're his firstborn children. And he was like, you're the best, go, go, go. And so my, you know, my twin sister and I were these feisty little girls. We're just like, you know, it can be anything we want to be. So, you know, this cultural, structural spaces that have for the longest undermined girls and said, no, you cannot get an education. No, you cannot be present here. No, this is a space for the men. You're not allowed here cascade all the way to the political process. 
And the representation within the United Nations is a representation of nations. And so our communities that are, you know, pro and are encouraging of their, you know, the, 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 the other half of being, which is, you know, the female being in those communities and respecting and making sure that there's deliberate policies. We've seen examples with Rwanda that says 50-50 in parliament uh, that says, you know, posting of all of this has to be happening at that. When we see this national decision that is very deliberate of inclusion, not just a by the way inclusion, it's embedded in the policy. That way, even when a country is sending somebody to the UN multilateral space, they make sure, for example, the Rio conventions, we know the climate change process or the biodiversity process, or even the land process, UNCCD, we have to make sure that the delegations that are coming are balanced delegations. I have been to these processes where it's an only all men delegation or one woman, 20 men, you know, almost like a talking woman. And this is problematic because when they go back to capital and they're talking about these intergovernmental processes, there will be a problem. How then can that be embed embedded into legislation to talk about this is what we want to see change. We want to have a climate you know, unit at the national level, et cetera, except you've actually forgotten the other half that is also responsible for being a part of that change process at the national level. So there's a very intricate and very deep connection with what is happening at the house and also what's happening at the multilateral space because we all come from all these cultural contexts and spaces that define how representation happens. Thank you for drawing that link from, yeah, the earliest ages and all the way at the bottom to later on in your career and all the way at the top. It is, um, it can diverge, but it's often quite linear. And um, thanks for thanks for raising that important point, uh, Catherine. When I was doing a bit of research on you and your background, I was listening to an interview that you did once, and you were speaking about when you were a young scientist. And again, there weren't so many women in the field, less than there than there are now, and you didn't have any female mentors. But you did have men encouraging you to pursue a career in the sciences, also because you are a woman. And one professor in particular, you said um, he asked you what support you needed to thrive in this space. And I'm wondering, because you didn't give the answer in that interview, uh, but how did you answer his question? What did what support did you ask um, ask him for? Well, I, I never had a female mentor. And although I learned enormous amount from many, many men who have mentored me over the years, um, that's a big part of why I'm part of the Earth Science Women's Network today and a big part of why I spend some of my time mentoring younger early career researchers, uh, because we really need to give each other our helping hands all along the way. So with me, it did begin with my dad. My father was a science teacher and he thought and taught us, his three daughters, and his six sisters, he would joke that the only other male in the house was the cat. <laughs> um, he taught us that science was the most fascinating thing you could possibly study. And so I grew up not realizing that there was a, gender as a gendered aspect to, to STEM education. I remember the first time it came up, I had signed up for a physics class in high school. And I remember one of my friends said to me, you're taking a physics class, that's not for girls. That was the first time I had heard that. I thought, what does she mean by that? Why is it not for girls? But I took it anyways. 
when I got to university, I was taking physics. And in second year university, I lost the scholarship that I had been depending on to pay my tuition because I was putting myself through university. I lost it by one percentage point. And I was in despair. I didn't know what to do. I was already working in the summer. Um, I had no idea how I was going to pay my tuition. The head of the physics department, a big physics department, 13 floors on the building, called me into his office. And I thought to myself, oh, no, he's going to kick me out of the program. I went into his office and he said, we need more women in physics. I noticed that you, you know, you're doing okay, but you might be struggling. What can I do to help you? And I, I still remember, I think I, I might have cried. <laughs> I, I, I told him about how I had lost my scholarship and I didn't know how I was going to pay for tuition. And he said, well, did you know we have research scholarships? And I think that you would be great to apply for a research scholarship where you work for a professor and you do research and you get the funds you need to pay for your tuition. So he recommended me for a research scholarship. I fell in love with research and with science based on that. And that single interaction really changed the trajectory of my life. Wow, that's a really interesting story of um, taking what seems like the depths of despair and turning it into such a positive event not just for yourself, but really for the benefit of everyone. So things do work out for the best sometimes. Thanks for sharing that. It's a beautiful story. Um, Annalie, I want to pose you that same question. As a young conservationist, what support do you feel that you need on a practical or logistical or financial level, but also on a personal level and perhaps the mentorship or and the support you need intrinsically. Uh, yeah, if you could speak on that. Okay, um, there are many important things about this question, but I think there are two main points that I will speak about on behalf of the, of the young people who are getting started the, in conservation and climate action. Um, the first point is, I think it's necessary to create a job market around the restoration, around climate change and conservation. Of course, taking into account the representativeness of women into this, into this job market. Uh, what I mean is everyone needs to make a living somehow. And sometimes I feel that young people are expected to volunteer their, their time or are poorly paid because they don't have experience or are starting. So I think it's unrealistic to expect young people to educate themselves, build great careers and make significant impact in the world if they can't make a living out of it. And that's the first point. And the secondly, and related with the first, is that we need more effective policies that aim to materialize the acts and transformation we need uh, to maintain habitable uh, conditions in our planet. I mean, some, sometimes I see that the ideas should came out, come out of the papers, of the international events, of the agreements to be applied, really applied in the field and in nature to see results of all of that work we are doing together. Absolutely. And the second part of that question in terms of what you feel you need on a personal level, is there any specific type of mentorship or role model that you feel is important for young women in this space? Well, I grow without an example or an insp inspiring women working. I, I, I never saw women working on science or nature because maybe uh, 
before uh, we didn't have uh, many op uh, job opportunities for women. So right now, I think that my dream is to inspire many other little girls, many other young girls to, to jump into scientific careers or technological careers or, uh, or to work in restoration or ONG. I don't know, there are many things we can do, but I really, I, I'm feeling strongly inspired by Musonda, by Catherine, uh, it's, it's amazing to, to see the, the work of many uh, women around the world. And in some way, I think that we are working together. Maybe we don't meet each other, but we are working together. So it's, it's very important. I'm not, um, I'm not an, a mentor right now, but because I'm constructing my career, I'm learning many things, but I really expect to do it in, in the future, yes. Yeah, you will certainly have so much to teach. And I appreciate your point that we are all very connected in the work that we're doing, even if we don't know names and faces, it is all connected and it's for the same cause. Uh, thanks for those beautiful words. Uh, Musanda, you have been a mentor for many people and you're such a personality and such a dynamic leader. And as a mentor, and you do put so much conscious thought into the words that you speak, whether it's on Twitter or on panels or whatever, what are some of the lessons and what are some of the, um, yeah, what, what do you seek to teach? What do you seek to pass down in the mentorship role that you play for so many? No, thank you for that. I just want to pick up a little bit on what Annalise said, because even if you think you're not a mentor, I think you're somehow informally uh, mentoring some other people that are learning from you in terms of the work that you're doing. So I don't want you to downplay your contribution in the work that you're doing, which is amazing and incredible. Um, you know what, Gabrielle, I just want to mention something that I've, I've been very mindful about and also just sharing with a lot of young women. Um, in, my, in my career, I mean, I've been in, in the United Nations for well over 13 years now, but also my life you know, experience has been over 20, 25 years. One of the things that Annalie mentioned was the issue of uh, you know, internships, for, in, for example. I made a deliberate effort that I would not you know, have an intern that was not paid. Because by the time you're in university and your master's or degree level, your intellectual space matters and it needs to be awarded or at least, you know, uh, respected and, and some kind of, you know, uh, resource or payment done for that, towards that, not just come and work for free because we want to exploit you or something of the sort. And as such, even when I've mentored young women, I've encouraged them to get, you know, substantive experience from the ground. But one thing I also learned over my own life experience is the voice of no. You know, that voice of no, that is always someone there saying, Masanda, come on, you're dreaming too big. You can't, you can't do that. A lot of young women come to me and tell me, oh my goodness, somebody told me that's impossible. I can't even dare. I'm like, but why not? If you cannot dare it, why not? Try it. If you fail once, try it again. And, and one of the things I've also done in a lot of my mentorship program is also to talk about my failures. Because for a lot of people, you see is this, wow, she's so successful. She's doing all these amazing things, but they haven't seen the flip side of just being rejected for a course that I've applied for, being rejected for a job that I think I was so capable of doing, 
or just being undermined by a male colleague or just being, you know, racially uh, maligned or sidelined and all of that. So I have to share these experiences because women will face them. Women in any walk of life and any race will face them. So how do you deal with that? And so I try and support them and give them some tools uh, and ideas of how they can explore and how they can advance or go forward. And even when this voice of no is really trying to be prominent, how do you stifle it and just put a lid on it and say, I will try, regardless of you just undermining me or telling me that it's impossible to do? Because this voice of no is an everyday voice of no. In our homes, in the social media platforms that we're facing, uh, in our partnerships, in our jobs, everywhere, it's there. Even through our friendships, with our French, with our friends, or even with our family. So, how do we manage that? It's finding that really, um, you know, sweet sport of a support system that really looks out for you and they hold your hand along the way, regardless, and just push you on. And so, really great work that you're doing, Emily. That's really inspiring. And we have all had our own failures, and it is important to talk about them. Um, the more we talk about them, the more we can learn and support one another. And um, Catherine, I'll go back to you. Speaking of talking, you're a very prolific climate communicator. And one of the things that you've preached most is for people to put more effort into simply talking about climate change and putting it at the forefront of our dialogues with one another. What advice do you have for women in particular and how we should be talking about climate change? So I think those are very powerful words about we are always hearing the voice of no. And sometimes that voice comes from our own heads. Sometimes we're the ones who are telling ourselves, I don't think I can do it. No, you know, I haven't heard from anybody that I could. And when we look at other people, we just see the Instagram version of their lives. We see the good highlights, not the failures, but the failures are what we learn the most from. So I just finished writing a book called Saving Us. Because again, it's not about the planet itself. It's about us living things. And in that book, I talk about how do we have constructive conversations with people? And more of the stories are about failures, way that, ways that I have completely failed to have constructive conversations. Because every time I have learned more from the failure than from the success. So when you fail, we're all human and we all make mistakes. That's the one thing we all have in common. It's what we do with those failures and those mistakes and those disappointments that define our life. And so as, as women, I think we often have the superpower of being very conscious of how we're connecting our head to our heart. In science, we learn all about all the facts and the data and the science and the information, but why does it matter? It matters because of what is in here. So when we communicate, always, always connect the head to the heart. Share why this matters how it affects real people and connected to our hands because we're also very practical too right connected to our hands what can we do to make a difference and that i believe is how we change the world thank you it's such a privilege to hear these words coming from one of the most powerful climate speakers uh and it's true we do need to um put the why into everything that we say and everything that we do and that's where the true meaning and the true change comes in we're coming up on time here. Uh, so I'm gonna put the last question back to you, Anneli, and um, just ending on a note of learning and on teaching. 
What is the biggest lesson that you've learned so far in your career that you would like to share with our listeners today? Okay, um, without a doubt, this path is giving me incredible lessons and hard lessons also. But one of the most important things I constantly work on is to believe in myself and what I want to achieve. This is very related with the we're talking about. Many people, I think, but mainly women suffer from the famous imposter syndrome, which make us think we don't not doing uh, enough uh, or that we don't deserve our achievements. And that's very sad and that's strong in our lives. And for many years, I think that working in nature and with the land has been a men's issue. And I think this is related. So for me, I'm working on forest restoration, agroecosystem restoration, and sometimes I feel that I'm in the wrong side or in the wrong place. <laughs> and I, I, I know that this is changing today and we women are recovering our place in this area and in many, as in many, many others, but it is a constant task to, of staying strong in what I do, in what I think, and um, my lesson, is to keep my vision strong and what I want to do for myself and mainly and the most important thing, uh, what I want to give to the world through my work in nature. Yes, that's, that's my lesson. <laughs> Thank you. What a beautiful note to end on and something that we can all take a piece out of and carry on with us going forward. Um, so thank you so much to each of you for joining us and more importantly for your incredible contributions to our planet, to the climate, to nature, and to other women and to all people. You guys are just such leaders and such mentors and such incredible people of this planet. It's really a privilege to lift you up for Women's Day next week. So thank you once again, Musanda, Catherine, and Ali. And thank you to everyone who joined us on this Friday. And I wish you all beautiful weekends and um, a great year ahead. We hope you enjoyed our conversation with these three incredibly inspiring women. Stay tuned for more insights about the role of women in science on next week's episode featuring IPCC climate policy expert Co Barrett. Subscribe to us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, or Stitcher, and reach out to us on social media with the hashtag GLFLive. And for everything you need to know about landscapes, ecosystems, and climate change, check out our website at globallandscapesforum.org. We'll see you on the next one.